0: This is R. J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 34, December 22, 1982. Before we begin with some of the matters I have in mind for today, I want to thank those of you who wrote, expressing your appreciation for the interview with John Saunders Quade. We do not approach things merely academically. Calcedon's purpose is to be an idea center, but also an action center. I want to report very briefly on some of the things that have happened since we had that interview. Uh, John uh, has been in Arizona this month and will be to the end of the month on location for a full-length television film. A week ago Saturday, we had a preliminary meeting here, Howard Amundsen, myself, and Roy Martin Harris, formerly of the BBC, and then with uh, Pat Robertson in setting up for three over a three-year period the highly professional operation now of the 700 Club, and uh, CBN. This past Sunday, three days ago, there was a second meeting, a follow-up, on this interview with John Saunders Quade. Howard Amundsen, Otto Scott, Roy Martin Harris, and John Saunders Quade met in Palmdale. Southern California. And out of this has come a plan. As a first step towards Christian reconstruction in the area of television, we want to see the production of a documentary, a kind of a news broadcast, giving the pros and cons but the basic thrust of religious liberty, Christian schools versus the state. Out of that meeting, they came up with some very specific details. Uh, John and Otto are at work on a script. Howard is in charge of the financing together with Otto, and Uh, Roy Martin Harris and and John will uh, handle the production. It's going to take $300,000. We are going to be approaching people within a month to get some financing for this production. If you know anyone who would be interested in it as a possible investment, please let us know. Write to... Either me or John Saunders, care of Calcedon, and we'll see to it that uh, Howard and Otto uh, get the uh, uh, letters. I do believe that this is an important first step. We must get the information out. Meanwhile, I'd like to report very briefly on... uh, one of our position papers, the one I wrote on religious liberty versus religious toleration. I think it came out about five or six months ago. It has been very, very widely reprinted. It has been used in reprints by local churches, by groups, and it has gone to virtually every minister in the United States and every priest. As a matter of fact, one Catholic diocese is making it available to every priest and to every member, as well as to seminarians. So, we're working on the idea front, and we hope now to have something in the way of a television film on the action front, on television. Well, now to go on to another subject, and uh, this is something that I want to call the attention of all of you to, but especially uh, a couple of you. John Lofton, I just got through talking with you on the telephone, John, and Howard Phillips of the Conservative Caucus. I think this is a book you both need to get a hold of and make use of. A Conservative Digest ought to Use some of the material in this book. And Howard, I think a synopsis of its contents should go to every member of Congress. The title of the book is The Ultimate Resource, the author Julian L. Simon. It was published by the Princeton University Press in 1981. It's a very important book, it's a very detailed and specific book. The ultimate resource, of course, is man. Now, some years ago, I wrote a little paperback entitled The Myth of Overpopulation. This book gives you a very detailed and specific answer to the myth of overpopulation. The point made is that national resources and energy are getting less scarce and more plentiful that population in the United States has been uh, not a problem and that pollution in the United States has been decreasing. The world's food supply is improving. Population growth has long-term benefits. Some men, notably Ehrlich of Stanford, were predicting in the 1960s that by nineteen 75 the world would be in the grips of famine another team of writers said that by 1975 the two basket cases india and egypt would be in such serious trouble that people would be dying on the streets in great numbers exactly the reverse has happened the 70s was not a decade of famine moreover In India, now, there is a surplus in food production. Moreover, the author calls attention to the fact of the highly publicized Sahel famine of the last two or three years, and he points out that the problem there was the primitive conditions. There was no way of moving food from one area to the other. There wasn't a road for five, for a thousand miles, and food was piled up where the roads ended, and it did not get to people. So, he said, the problem there was one of underpopulation, therefore a lack of development, and an inability to move supplies from one area to another. The book is exceedingly important. As a matter of fact, it has a preview, pages five following for a few pages, so that you could just take this preview and buttress it with some data throughout the book and give it to every congressman and senator in Washington, D.C., And I believe that even if only their aides read it, it will have an impact. What Simon says is, with regard to food, that the per capita food situation has been improving for the three decades since World War II. Moreover, famine all over the world has progressively diminished for at least the past century. And there is every reason to believe that human nutrition will continue to improve with continued population growth. As a matter of fact, land is not a fixed resource, as some insist. The point that Simon makes is, beginning centuries ago with the conquest of the dike, of the sea with the dikes in the Netherlands, All kinds of land has been reclaimed. Areas that were once impossible to uh, farm have been reclaimed. Farmland, he says, is man-made, man-made. And he says, and I quote, In my hometown of Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, in the middle of some of the most valuable corn and soybean farmland in the world, people are surprised to learn that before the pioneer farmers applied their labor and sweat and lives in developing this land, it was a malarial swamp. Though it was flat, it was also waterlogged, and therefore unproductive, until white settlers drained the prairie champagne county was very marshy. Early settlers noted that the Indians built platforms high on the trees to escape the mosquitoes. The schoolchild imagines a vast, untapped prairie frontier, where the white man, if he was brave enough to stand up to the Indians, needed only to drop seeds in the earth to have a bountiful crop. This is simply a myth. And he goes on to say that land building is not a thing of the past, even in Illinois. It's a very present fact. Let me document something there locally. Now, we're up in the mountains. This is mining and timber country. But we have a farmer in Vallecito, a very fine man and a good friend, Steve Farbotnik. Uh, Steve is an omnivorous reader, uh, very much dedicated to learning all that he can. He has a piece of land that when he got, it was not worth too much for farming. But what he has done is to compost endlessly. He has hauled in all kinds of straw and manure from the county fairgrounds, which is available and sitting there freely. And he has built up that soil, and it is now tremendous. He makes a living selling fruits and vegetables, and they are good, believe me. To give you an idea of what he does produce, two of his grandsons produced on his property some pumpkins that won a prize this fall, about Halloween time. Now, my son Mark, together with his boy Isaac, my grandson, age two, um, or three, I guess, Isaac is now, yes, grew a couple of pumpkins over 50 pounds, but they weren't even close in the competition. Steve's grandsons won the competition with two pumpkins, one from each of them, over 200 pounds. The winner was 215 pounds. (laughs) That's quite a pumpkin. (laughs) Now, that's on soil that most people would say was once useless soil. It shows you what can be done in the way of land building, and we haven't begun to exploit the possibilities. As a matter of fact, the amount of farmland in the United States has diminished because our productivity has increased. A lot of farmland in the South and in New England has gone out of production. Because we're producing so much on the rest of it, there's no need for that kind of farmland. And we have vast areas that have not yet been touched in the West. So, as Simon says, in the countries that are best supplied with food, such as the U.S., the quantity of land under cultivation has been decreasing because it is more economical to raise larger yields on less land than to increase the total amount of farmland. For this reason, Land for recreation and other reasons as well, and for wildlife, has been increasing rapidly in the United States. Simon has the data to back that up. The same is true of, uh, as I've just indicated, natural resources. they will become less scarce and less costly and far more plentiful in the years ahead. So, population growth has a beneficial effect on resources. Energy, well, he says, the long-run future of our energy supply is exceedingly bright, that we are going to develop cheap energy supplies from various sources that will be almost inexhaustible. Moreover, pollution has been decreasing. And he says that life expectancy increases with population growth and the pollution level drops. Moreover, he says the Experiments with regard to the pathological effects of population density are nonsense. The standard of living goes up with population density. Moreover, immigration usually has a positive effect on most citizens. Aliens, including and especially illegal aliens, take jobs that no one else will take. Moreover, he gives the data on the amount of social services that illegal aliens receive as against the amount of withholding taxes and other taxes they pay, and the result is a net plus for the United States, especially when you consider that a lot of those illegal aliens are never going to collect. A lot of them when they make enough, go back across the border. So, he says, again, we have a very one-sided and partial picture. Moreover, he says the contention that poor and uneducated people breed like animals is very, very clearly wrong, even for the poorest and the most so-called primitive societies. This idea, he says, is widely propagated by people who are well-off and are both ignorant and arrogant. Incidentally, Simon says he was in the classification of the ignorant, and he believed all these myths until until he began to explore them. So, he says, that... uh, all the population forecasting, for one thing, is nonsense. He has the data to demonstrate that population forecasting has been again and again wrong. They've been the worst prophets imaginable. He goes into some of the aspects of Planned Parenthood and the Allen Guttmacher Institute Involuntary Sterilization, and much, much more. This book is a gold mine, and I think it's very important for everyone to read this book. It's not easy reading, but it's important reading. Well, uh, this is a book, as I say, you're going to have to read and I think it's especially that Washington know about it, that our conservative leadership know about it, because the data in this book is superb. He brings out the fact that behind this kind of false thinking which he is going after are value judgments that are very alien to our culture. And he deals very specifically with these. So I very strongly recommend this book. I think it's a gem. I think you ought to read it. And there was a very interesting article in it, which Dorothy and I, and Mark as well, enjoyed reading immensely, because it fits in with what Simon is talking about. We are developing new types of food. In American Way for December 1982, on page 57 following, is an article by Richard Walkomir, W-O-L-K-O-M-I-R. The title is, It's Coffee, It's Milk, It's Superbean. It's about a plant from the tropics which is being suddenly recognized as the most nutritious, single plant we have, far surpassing the soya bean and far tastier. It's the winged bean. It's called the winged bean because it will grow up to 12, 15 feet high. So staking it out is a job. It's very nutritious. It flourishes in the tropics. It's almost entirely edible. The uh, beans are very delicious. The leaves are delicious and nutritious, and the roots are particularly tasty. The only thing that can't be eaten is the stalk, and that's good for composting. It can grow uh, in a variety of climates. It needs a long day, and therefore the tropics, but it can be planted in Hawaii and Florida. However, I'm almost sure that plant experts are going to develop uh, varieties of this winged bean that will do very well in uh, other climates as well. I'm sure they'll start working on it almost any day. It's a delightful article. If you can get a hold of it, read it. Let me remind you again of uh, how to get Simon's S-I-M-O-N book, Julian L. Simon, The Ultimate Resource, Princeton University Press, 1981. Well, now on to some other subjects. One of my favorite men of the last century was a very unusual man. In a day of very great explorers, Samuel Baker, Sir Samuel White Baker, was unique. He has been eclipsed in recent generations because, uh, for one thing, he was not the wild, flamboyant, and reckless character that uh, Sir Richard Burton was, the translator of the Arabian Nights. Uh, precisely because of his uh, what some have called demonic character, Sir Richard Burton, has been very appealing to many people, so a great many books have been written about him. Well, Sir Samuel Baker was a very devout and godly man. He was important in the explorations of the Nile sources. However... Uh, <laughs> there was something about Sir Samuel Baker that made, when it came out, Queen Victoria frown upon him and boycott him, so that he went into an eclipse, although his work was extremely important. And his accounts of his explorations are rich reading today. I have in my hand the two volume book, The Albert Nyanza Great Basin of the Nile and Exploration of the Nile Sources, with maps, illustrations, and portraits. Well, what was the scandal in Sir Samuel Baker's life that made Queen Victoria frown on him and boycott him and force? Sir Samuel off the limelight and off the stage, as it were, of British attention in the last century. Well, Sir Samuel Baker, a very devout, Bible-toting Christian, had bought his wife in a slave market. (laughs) And that wasn't the proper thing for an English gentleman to do. His wife, a very beautiful woman, was from a Christian family somewhere in Central Europe, a young girl who had been seized by the Turks and was being auctioned off. And Sir Samuel Baker couldn't bear to see a Christian girl like that being exhibited and auctioned, and he bought her. He took care of her, they fell in love with each other, and they got married. She was quite a remarkable woman. But Queen Victoria frowned on getting wise that way. <laughs> so poor Sir Samuel Baker was uh, shoved to the sidelines. Well, one of the things that makes Sir Samuel Baker very appealing is his absolute assurance as a proper Englishman, a God-fearing Christian, that Wherever he was and whatever he did, the good Lord was going to protect him, and he was never afraid. He took off into the heart of Africa without troops. The Muslim rulers in the border countries were not going to give them to him for a variety of reasons. So he had as cutthroat a band of natives as you could hope to find, Arabs and blacks. But he was their leader. They were under his authority, and he laid down the law to them. And again and again, when uh, they were ready to mutiny, to kill him, to seize all the guns, the uh, things he had to bribe local rulers or to give gifts to them, and to make off with the wealth of the expedition, he browbeat them with his sense of moral authority. He lectured them. And his supreme confidence cowed them every time. I can't locate the particular episode that I think was very, very choice. Maybe it isn't in this book, but On one occasion, he lectured them and sat them down like a group of Sunday school children and told them what was what. At any rate, on this occasion, they were uh, facing very serious problems. Formerly, I had supplied each of my men with a piece of Macintosh waterproof, he says, to be tied over the locks of their guns during the march. I now ordered the drum to be beat and all the men to form in line in marching order, with all with their locks tied up in the waterproof. I requested Mrs. Baker to stand behind me and to point out any man who should attempt to uncover his locks when I should give the order to lay down their arms. The act of uncovering the locks would prove his intention, in which event I intended to shoot him immediately and take my chances with the rest of the conspirators. I had quite determined that these scoundrels should not rob me of my own arms and ammunition if I could prevent it. Let me interject. He could have taken a course in which he could have protected himself and allowed them to run off with what they were carrying, but he wasn't going to let them get away with anything. He was going to control them. The drum beat. The Vaquil himself went into the men's quarters and endeavored to prevail upon them to answer the call. At length, fifteen assembled in line. The others were nowhere to be found. The locks of the arms were secured by Macintosh as ordered. It was thus impossible for any man to fire at me until he should have released his locks. Upon assembling in line, I ordered them immediately to lay down their arms. This, with insolent looks of defiance, they refused to do. Down with your guns at this moment, I shouted, sons of dogs. And at the sharp click of the locks, as I quickly cocked the rifle that I held in my hands, the cowardly mutineers widened their line and wavered. Some retreated a few paces to the rear, others sat down and laid their guns on the ground, while the remainder slowly dispersed and sat in twos or singly under the various trees about eighty paces distant. Taking advantage of their indecision, I immediately rose and ordered my Vakil and Ricarn to disarm them as they were thus scattered, foreseeing that the time had arrived for actual physical force, the cowards capitulated, agreeing to give up their arms and ammunition if I would give them their written discharge. I disarmed them immediately, and the Vakil, having written a discharge for the fifteen men present, I wrote upon each paper the word mutineer above my signature. None of them being able to read, and this being written in English, they unconsciously carried the evidence of their own guilt, which I resolved to punish should I ever find them on my return to Khartoum. Thus disarmed, they immediately joined others of the traitors' parties, Arab traders. These fifteen men were the jailins of my party, the remainder being "'Dongawalas, both Arabs of the Nile north of Khartoum. "'The Dongalawas had not appeared when summoned by the drum, "'and my vaquil being of their nation. "'I impressed upon him his responsibility for the mutiny, "'and that he would end his days in prison should my expedition fail. "'The boy Sa'at and Rikar now assured me "'that the men had intended to fire at me, "'but that they were frightened at seeing us thus prepared.' that I must not expect one man of the Dongalawas to be any more faithful than the Jalins. I ordered the Vakil to hunt up the men and bring me their guns, threatening that if they refused, I would shoot any man that I found with one of my guns in his hands. There was no time for mild measures. I had only Sa'at, child and Ricarn upon whom I could depend and I resolved with them alone to accompany Mohammed's Mah- Maham- people to the interior and to trust a good fortune for a change or, and a chance of proceeding. Well, at any rate, he put down the mutiny, and he went to bed and slept very well, very confident that he had taken care of it. That was Sir Samuel Baker. But again and again, he had the same problem. As the men decided they'd be a little smarter and a little more prepared the next time. On another occasion, he said, "I now observed that Belial was standing very near to me on my right, in advance of the advance of the men who had risen from the ground." "'and employed himself in eyeing me from head to foot "'with the most determined insolence. "'The fellow had his gun in his hand, "'and he was telegraphing by looks "'with those who were standing near him, "'while not one of the others rose from the ground, "'although close to me. "'Pretending not to notice bel "'was now as I had expected once more the ringleader, "'for the third time I ordered the men "'to rise immediately and to load the camels. "'Not a man moved.' but the fellow Belayal marched up to me and looked me straight in the face, dashed the butt-end of his gun in defiance on the ground and led the mutiny. Not a man shall go with you. Go where you like with Ibrahim, but we won't follow you nor move a step farther. The men shall load, shall not load the camels. You may employ the niggers to do it, but not us. I looked at this mutinous rascal for a moment. This was the burst of the conspiracy and the threats and insolence that I had been forced to pass over for the sake of the expedition all rushed before me. Lay down your gun, I thundered, and load to the camels. I won't, was his reply. Then stop here, I answered, and at the same time, lashing out as quick as lightning with my right hand upon his jaw. Let me interject. The man was expecting, I skipped over, Baker to reach for his gun, and he hit him with his fist. He rolled over in a heap, his gun flying some yards from his hand, and the late ringleader lay apparently insensible among the luggage, while several of his friends ran to him and did the good Samaritan for him. Following up on the moment, the advantage I had gained by establishing a panic I seized my rifle and rushed into the midst of the wavering men, catching first one by the throat and then another and dragging them to the camels, which I insisted upon their immediately loading. All except three who attended to the ruined ringleader mechanically obeyed. (laughs) Now that's your supreme Englishman, confident, certain of his authority, in command of the situation no matter what happened. That's why the British won an empire in the last century. And it was men like Sir Samuel Baker who did it. Raw courage. It never occurred to Sir Samuel Baker to be afraid, nor ever occurred to him that, what a horrible thing to go off into the midst of a jungle with cutthroat, Men, such as his crew, were the worst cutthroat Arabs imaginable with a young bride. This was their honeymoon trip. (laughs) A marvelous story. (laughs) You must get acquainted with Sir Samuel Baker. There is, by the way, a book out now about uh, his marriage and Queen Victoria's indignation over the whole thing. She couldn't fault Lady Baker. She was, every inch a lady, a very beautiful girl. It was not the way a proper Englishman should get his bride, and it never, never sat well with Queen Victoria. Well, (laughs) on to some other subjects. Our time is very short, uh, so I'm not sure I can take up everything, but there are a few things I'd do want to deal with i mentioned john lofton earlier and i'd like to quote from john lofton's journal uh, many of you are familiar with john as an editor of the conservative digest and also as a columnist a syndicated columnist across the country he is also a very dedicated christian In the Monday, November 15, 1982, column, he dealt with the uh, article in the Washington Post about Andropov as a closet liberal. An amazing article. Andropov, we are told, and the same ideas appearing in various parts of the country. In my travels in recent weeks, I've encountered it in the papers of two or three cities. So uh, we are told that really we have something to hope for in Andropov. He's a closet liberal. Now, very early in one of the easy chairs of about a year or so ago, I dealt with the fact that years ago, when I was a student, and Stalin had seized power, we were told that Stalin was the conservative Uh, There were elements of uh, capitalism in his thinking, and the real communism had died with the uh, exile of Trotsky. And, of course, we've been hearing that over the years again and again. So now we're hearing it about a KGB man, Andropov. And... Uh, John does a beautiful job of uh, exploding this whole thing. In fact, he has some interesting comments with uh, a Russian. Well, the interesting fact is that even the press now is ready to connect Andropov to the plot to kill the Pope. And the evidence is piling up that Andropov was responsible for the plot to kill the Pope. This is the kind of person our press is calling a closet liberal. It is fantastic that there should be such things published. In Moscow, of course, they've taken note of these accounts and are denying it, denouncing it, but we continue to do business with Andropov. I've seen several editorials as I've traveled saying that we should, now that we have a new leader with a fresh outlook, try to work out some kind of detente, although they tend to use other words increasingly, with Andropov, because a new leader means new hope, and so on. Who are they kidding? Anderpoff, a KGB man? A man who has conspired to murder a religious leader, and it was not his fault that he failed. And we expect honor and honesty from him? It's crazy. It's moral insanity. Well, to go on to very, very briefly. There's been a lot on television the past month. We are 150 miles from San Francisco, so we get one or two channels about San Francisco's attempt, the city's attempt to deal with the homeless who are wandering the streets of San Francisco. And it looks as though, well, this is what is good about civil government, because it does take care of human needs this way. Well, Anthony Sutton, in his Phoenix Letter for December 1982, has this to say. The Phoenix Letter recently looked into the human cost of the recession in San Francisco. Here are some of the tragedies we unearthed. One. An estimated four to ten thousand persons are wandering the streets of San Francisco, homeless. Yet the San Francisco Housing Authority has five hundred vacant houses. Its administration is so inefficient and the procedures so cumbersome, the houses remain vacant. Two thousands are fed daily by private organizations. Yet when Saint Anthony's Mission appealed to the city of San Francisco. For facilities, the city merely offered two buses. Earthquake standards were cited as the reason for not opening up city facilities. As we go to press, the city has even recalled the two buses. Three, San Francisco, the city, in in San Francisco, the city does nothing directly to feed the indigent. This is handled by private organizations from private donations with some government food. Four, the U.S. Park Service recently ejected families living in tents in Bay Area campgrounds. The Phoenix letter checked one of these campgrounds. We found 120 spaces, only a dozen occupied in the winter winter season. However, the Park Service had an estimated 20 trucks, several houses, and we estimated a staff of 15 to 20 to keep the facility operating. Yet the Park Service turned out the homeless who recently paid taxes to support this lavish facility. Five, the federal government has vast stocks of butter, cheese, and other foods. Minute quantities have been released to Americans. Yes, vast quantities go to the Soviet Union and East European countries at giveaway prices. Why can't this surplus go to the Americans who helped pay for it. As I said, this is from the Phoenix Letter, edited by Anthony C. Sutton. Its editorial offices or subscription office is Box 39850, Phoenix, Arizona 85069. It costs a year, and it's well worth it. Well, I just read a letter this morning from one of you, an old and wonderful friend. And it's addressed to me and Dorothy. And, Louisa, I hope you don't mind my sharing this letter with others. I was very deeply moved. The letter reads, Here is my tithe, finally. Well, it's several times more than a tithe. I'm sorry, I wasn't able to come up with it when you asked for it, but I'm sure it can be put to good use now. We're just beginning to reap, to reap the benefits of our hard work, trials, and worries. The building has been remodeled, and the floors are all but one rented. We're thinking of dividing up everything so that Each one of us, six, she and her children, has his own property to manage, but the resulting capital gains tax is prohibited. So much of the increased value since my father's death is inflation, and we've already paid inheritance tax on it and property tax every year. We thought we could get around it by getting into an offshore business trust organization, but it turns out that the law has changed. My son Bill has turned tax rebel and refuses to pay taxes. He says he doesn't want to finance his own destruction. He's not alone, of course. But even though these folks are honorable and patriotic and courageous, I fear for them because the IRS are known to be vicious at times. Everybody is so fearful of an audit and seems to feel guilty until proven innocent. I'm so sick and tired of reading investment letters and being urged to do this, to buy that, to invest here, to sell there, to ensure one's future, to have security. Shouldn't we put more faith in God? Between 1940 and 1945, when we lived in Germany, we were in no way prepared, and yet we came through all sorts of dangers safely. Let me interject something here. After some griefs here, the family went, Louisa went with her children to be with her grandparents and got caught in the war. In Stuttgart, there were the bombings. Before they were at their worst, a dwelling in the country was found for us. Families with children had to leave the large cities. We were fortunate because we could always get some extra milk, an egg or two, some flour. We gathered the tiny nuts of the beech trees on the ground which we took to a mill to be made into cooking oil. We would gather brush in the woods for kindling. We had to go door to door asking the peasants for wood, several pieces at a time, until the yearly auction when one could procure a tree to be felled. But we... Our two nine-year-old boys and I had to haul the cut-up logs from the forest in a small hand-cart. Then they had to be split. Herman, because of his weak legs from polio, couldn't help much, but he formed a corral group with the menfolk and practiced with them once a week, thereby gaining their appreciation and gratitude. At the end of the war, Herman, the burgomaster, and the minister of the village were blacklisted by the SS and due to be strung up like several of their colleagues in neighboring villages for having been rebellious in trying to save the population. Our village was made an example of how not to be. The commanding officer of an artillery force on a nearby hill had been commanded to aim his guns into our town as punishment. He aimed but across, not into our town. Shrapnel was flying everywhere. Rudy, aged nine, was about to close the shutters, saw a woman outside carrying a large sheet of baked goods from the baker and shouted to her, Watch out, Mrs. Bedebach, and close the shutters. At that instant, shrapnel struck the shutters where seconds before Rudy's head had been, and Mrs. Bedebock laid in the dirt, wounded in the leg which later was amputated. Next day Bill, also aged nine, was standing near the house under a big tree by the village, by the village well, when a piece of shrapnel flew by his ear so close that he felt the heat. The constable who received the list from the SS in Schwab Hall disappeared behind the lines of the advancing American forces. He knew all three men well. That was what saved the three men from being hanged in the last stages of the war. So, you see, we came through alive and well, never really having to starve, though food was scarce. And all our daily life revolved around finding sources of food. But God took care of us. One night when I was home alone with the four children asleep, great numbers of bombers flew overhead unendingly, it seemed. I didn't know what to do, but I get them all warmly dressed and into the cellar in time. Suddenly I felt a great inner calm. And looking up, the ceiling seemed to have changed into a cathedral-like dome. Somehow I knew we were safe while bombers still flew. God brought us through so many dangers safely. Why should we worry now when to buy gold and silver? Should we invest in real estate, money market funds, buy storage food, tools, etc.? It's frustrating because one can't always do what's recommended for lack of funds at the proper time, or one lacks the space to store the valuables. I am very active musically lately, playing violin in our chamber orchestra in a trio and in a quartet. Uh, Louisa, may I add, lives in a little mountain town or outside on a farm a little south of us. We perform the Messiah and Bach's Christmas cantata with a chorale and with a trio and quartet, we bombarded the ears of the poor patients in two convalescent homes. Herman resides in the one in in blank, where he is quite happy and very well taken care of. I celebrated my 75th birthday in September with two parties. One was a surprise party arranged by my daughter from faraway Hacienda Heights. Without the slightest inkling of what was going on, I came downstairs from my nap into a crowd of friends and neighbors, milling around an overloaded table of all sorts of delightful food. It was a truly wonderful surprise. Two of the quartet members were there with their wives, one is German, the other Swiss. I hope I haven't bored you. Please excuse my abominable typing. I'm a bit out of practice, not having typed much lately. We still have problems, which I don't want to mention now, so please pray for us if you have time. I'm so happy and proud for you and your success and progress with your various projects and endeavors. God bless you and your work. Use the money wherever it is needed most. I wish you and your family a blessed Christmas and New Year. Well, Louisa, God bless you. A wonderful letter. One thing surprised me in that letter your age. With all you've been through, you don't show it. I thought you were much younger than I. Well, there's so much more that uh, I could say, but. I think I'll close with that. It's been good to be with you again. A very happy and blessed new year to all of you. We'll be together again in two weeks. Until then, God bless you.